Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this inaugural edition uh, for 2022. And uh, today is Saturday, January 1st, uh, 2022, and we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, We'd like to thank everyone for tuning in once again for another year of programming uh, from the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast, and Happy New Year to all of our listeners uh, throughout uh, the world. And uh, later on in our program, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the homecoming uh, sponsored by the Ethiopian government to build support for the Horn of Africa state, which is under attack uh, by Western-backed elements. Sudanese media outlets uh, were raided yesterday by security forces in an attempt to intimidate journalists uh, covering the mass democratic movement. Eight Malian soldiers in West Africa were killed in an ambush in the north of that country. We'll have details on that as well. And people are still being displaced in northern Mozambique uh, due to the insurgency uh, over the last uh, several years. In the second hour, uh, we're going to look back on the literary efforts of three uh, key African-American icons, including uh, Lorraine Hansberry, uh, Langston Hughes, and James Baldwin. Finally, we review uh, some of the most important and pressing issues taking place on uh, the African continent. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, We'll take a musical interlude uh, with uh, Mudenge and uh, music from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, Let's listen in. Mama, I'm going to go to the 
Kona puwa disluta, muba kutugi sana ye, kaya ngujina daji. Salamuze wa kujimano kwa Yeah. <laughs> 
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, This is our maiden uh, program uh, for 2022. Today is uh, Saturday, January 1st, uh, 2022, and uh, we just heard the music uh, from the southern region of the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, from the classic uh, and rare, um, hard-to-find album entitled Mundenge Bushrock, and um, that music, of course, uh, involves traditional instrumentation as well as modern instrumentation, along with uh, some creative percussion work and harmonies as well. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. And these are some of the headlines uh, from uh, the Pan-African Newswire for uh, this weekend. Now, following government's call uh, in Ethiopia for the diaspora community to the Great Ethiopian Homecoming Challenge Initiative, Ethiopian origins and friends of Ethiopia are flocking to the country to celebrate the Ethiopian Jenna, that is the Christian uh, commemoration of Christmas, and uh, Ethiopian Tumkat, the Epiphany festivals, along with their families. Subsequently, um, just last Wednesday, the official welcoming event was held at Friendship Park uh, for the diaspora community to Ethiopia from all corners of the world. Speaking on the occasion, Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Affairs Minister Demike Mekadim said that the diaspora community over the last year has been denouncing external meddling in Ethiopia's internal affairs based on international uh, no more hashtag no more movement. The diaspora uh, has condemned undue pressures on Ethiopia in a strong spirit of gallantry. Uh, conspiring with external enemies of Ethiopia, the terrorist uh, TPLF group committed horrendous crimes against civilians. To fulfill its evil mission, uh, the terrorist TPLF made allegiances with historical enemies of Ethiopia and committed horrendous crimes against innocent civilians in areas of Amhara and Afar states that it had invaded. However, Ethiopia has overcome the multifaceted challenges uh, brewed by its internal and external enemies uh, with the concerted efforts of its children, including the diaspora community, and has continued its journey uh, to the brighter future. The struggle carried out by the Ethiopian diaspora community has added impetus uh, to the international Pan-African movement. And uh, in other news uh, taking place uh, on uh, the African continent, in uh, the Republic of Sudan, security forces uh, yesterday stormed the offices of Al Arabiya, Al Hadath, and Al Shirak channels um, and assaulted journalists and their employees. Now, this is according to a report uh, that was published uh, yesterday by uh, the Sudan Tribune. Uh, it said that the security forces on Thursday uh, carried out unprecedented assaults targeting journalists who covered the December 30th uh, protest uh, in Khartoum 
in a bid to discourage them uh, from covering the anti-coup protest. Dozens of members of the security forces stormed the office of Al-Arabiya, Al-Hadath Television, where they beat journalists, seized mobile phones, they destroyed equipment, and threw uh, tear gas in the different offices. The director of Al-Hadath uh, TV offices in Khartoum, Lina Yakub, after the assault, stated that a joint security force expressed anger uh, over the channel's coverage of the protests and accused her of taking the side of the street. Quote, they further beat me when I intervened to protect a colleague they were beating, unquote, she said, adding that uh, three of the staff members were at the hospital. It reported that the attack uh, took place after the broadcast of direct footage of the security forces firing tear gas and beating demonstrators harshly. Surveillance cameras broadcast by the channel documented the assault and the security members who attacked them. Uh, later, the channel, which broadcast from the Emiratis, uh, said that the head of the Sovereign Council, Abdel Fateh El Bahan, had sent a representative to its offices in Hartoon to apologize for uh, the attack. The Saudi-funded al Arabiya and al Haddad channels have the same office in Khartoum. On the other hand, the director of al Sharat Television, Nabil Al-Khatib, said uh, deeply concerned, said he was deeply concerned about the security of the channel staff members in Khartoum after the security forces stormed their offices. Uh, he said that the security officers prevented the journalists in Khartoum from, quote, complete uh, completing the live broadcast of what is happening in the city. He added that the security members cut off the Internet lines and seized the broadcasting cameras before returning them later. In the same way, the security forces launched tear gas canisters inside the offices of Arabia Sky News Channel, uh, causing suffocation and injuries. A photojournalist for Al-Hura was arrested by the security forces while covering the protest on the Al-Ghassar Street, they brutally assaulted him and confiscated his cameras and phone. On Thursday, the resistance committees organized mass protests against the coup leaders. Four people were killed by gunshots, and over 200 were wounded. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In the West African state of Mali, uh, the army said that eight soldiers have died during an attack in a western area of the Sahel nation where jihadist forces have been operating now for a number of years. And this has doubled the previous toll of those killed uh, by uh, the jihadists. In an update uh, on late Thursday, Mali's armed forces uh, said Tuesday's attack also saw seven soldiers wounded and two military vehicles destroyed, but added that 31 assailants were killed without identifying their group. When it first reported the attack on Wednesday, the Army said four soldiers had died and around a dozen were wounded when a unit in the Nara region was the target of a sophisticated attack combined uh, a improvised explosive device uh, along with heavy weapons. In Thursday's statement, the Army said on the side of the assailants, 31 bodies were discovered. Uh, this was Thursday morning, along with weapons and munitions. The Army has not said who carried out the attack. It also said that Wednesday night uh, they saw troops attacked uh, at uh, Sikasso uh, in the far south while the Hamburi military camp in the central Mopti area came under shelling. No casualties were recorded in the two incidents. <clears throat> Mali is the epicenter of a jihadist insurgency that began in the north in 2012 and has spread to neighboring Niger and Burkina Faso. 
Thousands of people across the region have died, and around 2 million have been displaced by the conflict. Despite the presence of French and U.N. troops, the conflict spread to neighboring Burkina Faso and Niger. France intervened in 2013 and now has roughly 5,000 troops in the region, but plans to lower that number to 2,500 to 3,000 by 2023. The spiral of violence has continued despite the coup that brought the military to power in Bamako, in 2020, and then, of course, the second coup in 2021 had deposed the interim uh, head of state uh, who had been uh, requested uh, by the economic community of West African state, ECOWAS. Finally, uh, nearly 4,000 Mozambicans have fled their villages in a month uh, due to the intensifying jihadist attacks in Niassa, a province neighboring insurgencies, the hotbed of Cabo Delgado, a government official said Friday. The uh, Islamists terrorizing the gas-rich northern Cabo Delgado province for the past four years have in recent weeks shifted their attacks to the west and to Niassa. There are 3,803 displaced uh, people so far. These are people who fled from areas targeted by attacks in the Makula district. Phyllis Mino uh, Particio, a government spokesman in Niassa, uh, gave this information uh, to the Asia en France press uh, by telephone. The latest displacements uh, add to the more than 820,000 have fled the insurgency in Cabo Delgado uh, since uh, 2017. The Asa province has since the end of November become the latest target for the militants uh, being driven uh, from Cabo Delgado uh, by Pan-African military force composed of the Southern African Development Community along with Rwanda. Now, since July, more than 3,000 soldiers have been deployed from Rwanda along with the 16-nation Southern African Development Community SADAC to help uh, the government uh, smoke out uh, the insurgents. Now, these jihadists uh, launched their first raid in Makula District in Niasa province in late November. They have since staged sporadic attacks on several other villages claiming around two dozen lives. This place have sought shelter in Makula town where they are housed at government schools or moved in uh, with relatives and friends. Every day, people are arriving from the villages fleeing the attacks. That's according to a resident in Makula town. Uh, they told this to the Asian France press over the phone. Uh, they asked not to be identified. Regina Antanasio, uh, who was 30 years old, hurriedly quit her village in Lishengwe on December the 15th after the jihadist attacks. They started attacking the village at 6 p.m., and then my husband and I fled with our children. She said by phone, a police inspector was killed and a dozen and dozens of people were kidnapped during an attack on December 23rd, according to the local governmental authorities. Another villager said uh, women were kidnapped in the last known raid on Monday in Alasima village, around five kilometers from Makula town. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding, uh, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. 
The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing uh, and uh, of the day. All you need to do is go to our website, and uh, that is at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's, Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for New Year's Day, January 1st, uh, 2022. Just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. These programs can be shared with other potential listeners by merely copying and pasting the links into emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners. The Links can be copied and pasted on other blogs and websites as well as being shared on social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. This is Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Detroit's own uh, Kim Weston uh, doing her 
rendition uh, of the song Danger, A Heartbreak Dead Ahead. And, uh, of course, uh, the Marvelettes um, had also uh, had a very, very energetic as well uh, cover of that uh, same track. And uh, right now we want to look back at some of the pioneering literary figures uh, that have had a tremendous impact and continue to have a tremendous impact uh, on contemporary life. Uh, We're going to uh, listen to a rare archival interview uh, with three luminaries. Uh, This is from um, 1961, uh, some 60 years ago. Uh, We have Lorraine Hansberry, the legendary playwright and journalist and public intellectual, James Baldwin, uh, the writer, the playwright, the novelist, the essayist, the activist, and Langston Hughes, of course. Um, Langston Hughes, the former seaman, uh, the poet, playwright, the novelist, the composer. Let's listen to this uh, radio broadcast, an interview uh, with uh, all three of them participating, along with an executive uh, from a leading uh, publishing house in New York City, uh, during the early uh, 1960s, as they discussed uh, African Americans uh, within the publishing industry uh, during that time, largely centered around New York City. Uh, let's listen in. To begin the subject, which sounds rather alarmingly vague, the Negro in American culture, I'd like to start with uh, the end of a book review that James Baldwin wrote for the New York Times a couple of years ago. Uh, The review was on poems of Langston Hughes. And you concluded by saying he is not the first American Negro to find the war between his social and artistic responsibilities all but irreconcilable. To what extent do you find this true in your own writing uh, in terms of the self-consciousness of being a Negro and a writer, the polarity, if if it exists? Well... Um, the first thing, the first, the first difficulty is, is, is really um, so simple it's usually overlooked. Um, to be a Negro, to be a Negro in this country, and to be um, relatively conscious, is to be in a state of rage, almost, almost all of the time, and in one's work. And part of the rage is this: it isn't only what is happening to you, but it's what's happening all around you and all of the time in the face of the most extraordinary and criminal indifference, the indifference of most white people in this country, and their ignorance. Now, since this is so, you know, it, it's, very, it's a great temptation to, um, to simplify the issues under the illusion that if you simplify them enough, people will recognize them. Mm-hmm. I think this illusion is very dangerous because, in fact, it isn't the way it works. You know, a simple thing cannot be, a complex thing can be made simple. You simply have to try to deal with it in all its complexity and hope to get that complexity across. To be a, to be a Negro writer, then, is to um, somehow, I don't know, we can, we'll have to kick this around for, for a while. In the same way that you have to um, not knock down the elevator man and the doorman. No, at some point you have, to, you have to decide that you can't spend the rest of your life cursing out everybody you know, who gets in your way. And some other level, as a writer, you have to decide that what is really important is not that these people are Negroes, but that these people are people, mm-hmm. and that if you, and that the suffering of any of any person is really universal, and if you can never reach this level, 
is you can create a person and, and make other people feel what this person feels. And it seems to me when it's gone much further, um, obviously, you know, not only artistically but socially, than, than, than the, uh, the ordinary old-fashioned protest way. And I talked about Langston's, uh, Langston not being the first poet to find these um, responsibilities all but irreconcilable. He's not, and he won't be the last, um, because it, it also demands a great deal of time to write. It demands a great deal of stepping out of a social, of a social, social situation in order to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And all the time you're out of it, you can't help feeling but a little, a little guilty that you are not, on the, as it were, on the firing line, or, you know, uh, out there sort of um, tearing down the slums and doing all these things, which, in fact, other people can do better than you because it is still terribly true that a writer is very rare. Is that... Yes. <laughs> Lorraine Hansberry, and, uh, you first became widely known through Raisin and the Sun, and in writing that, to what extent did you feel, uh, in a sense, a double role, both as a kind of social actionist, protester, what have you, and as a dramatist? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't, I feel that I'm connected with what Jimmy was saying, that <coughs> A thing is probably twice true in this respect, that given the Negro writer, we are necessarily aware of a special situation in the American setting. And that probably works two ways. One of them, making us sometimes forget that uh, there, very there is really very or very limited expression in literature which is not protest, be it black, white, or mm -hmm. what have you, that I can't imagine a contemporary writer any place in the world today who isn't in conflict with his world. Personally, I can't imagine a time in the world when the artist wasn't in conflict, if he was any kind of an artist. Mm -hmm. He had to be. So that it isn't really that unique. We are doubly aware of it because of the special pressures of being a Negro in America. But I think to to destroy the abstraction for the sake of the specific is, in this case, an error. So that once we come to that realization, it doesn't get quite as confusing as uh, sometimes we tend to treat it. In my piece that you mentioned, I was <coughs> dealing with a young man. I know most people think that the mother is the prime character that play that has to do with efficiency and dramaturgy, not, <laughs> and, <laughs> not and, anything and, else. And the power of the actors. Eh? <laughs> well, <laughs> they were both admirable actors, mm -hmm. but uh, I was dealing with a young man who would have, I feel, been a compelling object of conflict as a young American of his class, of whatever racial background, that uh, with the exception of the incident at the end of the play, and mm -hmm. with the exception, of course, of character depth, because Negro character is a reality. There is no such thing as saying that a Negro could be a white person if you just change the lines or something like this. This is a very arbitrary and superficial approach to, I think, Negro character. But, and taking this long way around to say mm -hmm. what you do, what you uh, to try and answer what you ask, there really is no profound problem I started to write about this family as I knew them in the context of those realities which I remembered as being true for this particular given set of people. And at one point, it was just inevitable that a, 
problem of some magnitude, which was racial, would intrude itself, because this is, as I said before, one of the realities of Negro life in America. But it was just as inevitable that for a large part of the play, mm-hmm. that they would be excluded, because as Jimmy and I have remarked to one another many times, and I'm sure that Langston has in his own, uh, the duality of consciousness is so complete that it is perfectly true to say that Negroes do not sit around 24 hours a day thinking, I am a Negro. <laughs> you know, they really don't. I don't. I don't think he does or anybody else. And at the other hand, if you say the, the reverse, that is almost true. And this is part of the complexity that I think you're talking about, isn't it? Yes, it's a part of the complexity one's got to get at and deal with. Yes. It's, this is, it's, it, is, it, is, it, is, it isn't just a matter... I, I agree with Lorraine completely. You know, with, with mm-hmm. most of this in great detail, but it's this, it's this which is interesting. You know, it's this which one's got to get at. Because white, white men in this country and Americans in this, American Negroes in this country are really... I discovered this in Europe. Perhaps it was always very obvious, but it's never occurred to me before. Are really are really the same people. You know, mm-hmm. they are um, the only people in the world who understand American white men are are, are Negroes. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> I think that's profoundly true. I, I really, it I sounds really. romantic to say it aloud, but yeah, I have but a I feeling really of course. You, you, you make that point uh, several times, very very trenchantly in Notes of a Native Son, as I remember too, in yeah. some of the essays in it. Um, Langston Hughes, you have a large continuing body of work and uh, I wondered if you had felt in in the course of your own development as a writer a change in your feeling of this duality as the conditions around you changed as the struggle for equality became more militant as you had uh, some progress and setbacks on the right and the the status to some extent of, of the quote Negro writer unquote began to change in other words, to what extent did the society around you change the kind of tension under which you wrote? Oh, I must say that I don't notice any changes yet. <laughs> one, uh, one kind of problem after another comes to the mm-hmm. fore in different ways and in different sections of our country. And um, I happen to be uh, <clears throat> a writer who uh, travels a great deal because I read my poems in public quite a deal, you see. And almost every year I travel over most of the country, south and north, and uh, I do, of course, see appreciable changes in some um, areas of race relations, and I trust that my recent work reflects them to some extent. But by and large, it seems to me not really very different from when I was a child, the, uh, there are still a great many places where you can't get a hamburger or a cup of coffee or you can't get a, uh, you can't sit on a bench in a railroad station or mm-hmm. something of this sort. And not just in the South, it, uh, uh, those problems exist in Washington, on the West Coast, and in Maine, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, I am, of course, as, as everyone knows, primarily a, I guess you might even say a propaganda writer. My, my main material is is the race problem, and uh, I have found it most exciting and interesting and intriguing to deal with it in writing, and uh, I haven't found uh, the problem of being a Negro um, in any sense uh, a hindrance to putting words on paper. 
they, it may be a hindrance sometimes to selling them, hmm. or the material that one uses, the fact that one uses, or that I use the problem material and the material that uh, is likely to often excite discussion or disagreement, uh, in some cases prevents its quick sale, you know? I mean, I know that, no doubt it's much easier to uh, sell a story uh, like Frank Yerby writes without the race problem in it, or uh, like, yes, or, or as uh, Willard Motley, who also happens to be Negro, uh, uh, writes without accentuating the sharpness of our American race problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, those writers are, are much more commercial than than I or than than Miss Hansberry, I think, even, or uh, or James Baldwin, who uh, uh, to me seems to be one of the most racial of our writers in spite of his uh, <laughs> announcement of himself otherwise on occasion. <laughs> Later for you. Emil <laughs> <laughs> um, Capuya, not necessarily speaking for Macmillan, but for what you have what you've observed in publishing as a whole, do you think uh, Langston Hughes' point has validity that uh, the degree of sharpness in which the racial problem is, 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 um, is written about, is that much of a deterrent to sales, let's say in the book field? I, I, I wonder if there isn't a distinction between magazine writing and, and book writing. Here. No, I think not in that. Actually, yeah. all the three previous speakers, Ms. Hansberry, Mr. Hughes, and Jimmy Baldwin, had destroyed your opening gambit. You suggested mm-hmm. that uh, the tension that Jimmy alleged in his review was a real thing, and they've just told you it's not. And when they get to use discretion, they find that that tension is one that every artist has to settle within himself, and being an ego doesn't make it any harder or any easier. Mm-hmm. From a publisher's point of view, well, a publisher, is an, or from an editor's point of view, I should say, I don't mean to add those, that much glory to myself. Mm-hmm. From an editor's point of view, somebody who's uh, professionally interested in buying and selling literary material, an artist, a writer, is two different people. First of all, he's uh, an artist, and as such, his claims are absolute. You know, nothing's too good for him. The wind bloweth where it listeth. You've got to pay him advances. And uh, he, can, he can even reflect a sort of charisma on his editor, you know, the way uh, Thomas Wolfe did on that fortunate man at Scribner's. But he has another, <laughs> but he has another uh, personality, too. He's also a commodity. And as a commodity, he has no rights at all. He just has a market value only. So to come directly to your question, do I think that the questionable material that a Negro writer may find readiest to hand is questionable from the market point of view, I'd say that that is, uh, must be an absolutely individual case. Mr. Hugh has suggested that uh, it's uh, been a stumbling block in his road to riches. But um, that wouldn't be the case. Obviously, uh, Jimmy's uh, business as a novelist is largely with that material. You can see me later, too, Jimmy. No, and Miss Hansberry has had a, a great success, I think, partly because of what the great public that went to see that play thought of as exotic material. Uh, may, may I uh, say that from long years' experience with publishers, and many of them, I have about six now, uh, it has been my uh, feeling that if a publisher has one Negro writer on their list, or two at the most, they are not very likely to take another if the Negro writer is dealing in, in racial themes. Um, and it's not prejudice. It's simply that, uh, like they will tell you, well, we have a book, uh, a Chinese novel this year on our list. We don't want any more Chinese novels. Mm-hmm. Or we have two Negro writers, two Negro novels this year. Uh, I don't think we could, uh, could you wait another year for yours, you see? And um, the same thing is true in the theater. Uh, play after play after play by... 
uh, Negro playwrights, or white playwrights for that matter, on Negro themes. Uh, those are on Broadway, and once in a blue moon, one of them gets taken. Once in ten blue moons, one of them is a hit, like Raisin in the Sun, you see. And the Broadway uh, producers will tell you, quite frankly, uh, uh, we don't think that's commercial. Uh, look, last year the Long Dream flopped, the Cool World flopped. Mm -hmm. No more Negro plays. Uh, they're not commercial. We can't sell them. The people won't get the box office. So, uh, if you want to make money out of writing, being a Negro writer, I mean quickly and easily, I would say become a Willard Motley, become a, a Frank Yerby. Back to you. <laughs> well, I don't take that as an interruption, Mr. Hughes. That's perfectly true. I, I don't think it's the whole truth uh, in relation to the way the question was originally posed by Nat. So he, um, wouldn't that be true if two plays about the Jewish East Side were to... Uh, yes, uh, yes, it, it certainly would be. I said it's not a matter really of racial prejudice. It's a matter of the kind of material oh, you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. like well, you I took it as a rebuttal. And I was you go to the grocery much. store and you mm -hmm. want some bread where you don't want cake and... Mm -hmm. If you've got a loaf of bread, you're not going to buy another one that day. <laughs> oh, I don't... I, I wouldn't be so quick to exclude uh, the characterization, whether it is or isn't prejudice. I mean, there's so many different ways of saying the same thing, and it's, it would be more than wishful thinking to me to exclude prejudice as regards Negroes mm -hmm. with any uh, area of our fabric of life. I just don't think that's realistic. It's prejudice when you can't get an apartment. It's, I dare say it's probably prejudice when a skillful writer cannot publish because of some arbitrarily decided notion of what is or is not what they tell me all the time, parochial material, mm. highly narrow, uh, of narrow interest and so forth and so on. In a culture which has any pretensions toward uh, sophistication and universal <coughs> interest in human beings, there should not be arbitrary uh, designations of kinds of material. A good book should find a publisher. I know this is utter mm -hmm. idealistic assertion, but this should be the reality. And the fact that we who are writers come to accept this concept of, yes, well, they, they did a Chinese play last year on Broadway, so you know they won't do another for the next 40 years, is, uh, I don't think to treat the industry fairly itself. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't say it's fully true, but um, I think commercially speaking, and he brought up the problem of the writer as a commodity, I think it is by and large true uh, what I have said. And I think um, that for the Negro writer to make a living, of course, is doubly hard due to the prejudice that Miss Hansberry has just spoken about in other areas relating to writing. For example, I, I told you that I'm a a lecture and I read my poems. I have been with uh, two or three of the top agencies. Uh, those agencies cannot, as a rule, book me at women's clubs. Women's clubs have teas. They do, they do not wish to mingle socially with their speaker, apparently, and they do not wish to invite their speaker's friends in whatever town he may be speaking mm -hmm. to the program because it's followed by a social event. Therefore, it's um, a rare... Uh, occasion when I read my poems to a, a woman's club. On occasion I have, but rarely. Uh, if you want a job in the publishing industry, try and get it. How many editors of color can anyone name on any of our uh, New York publishing houses? Uh, you may find an occasional uh, girl secretary at the switchboard, or, or a typist, or a stockroom boy, but for the writer himself to get some sort of work related to his actual writing and publishing, 
is well nigh impossible, I think. Um, until very recently, in the last few years, Negroes did not write for Hollywood. Nothing was really sold to Hollywood. That's the sort of new development. I've been writing for 30 years. I've had one Hollywood job in 30 years. And many white writers whom I know, less famous, with fewer books, some with almost no name at all, uh, have Hollywood swimming pools and a, and a house in uh, Palm Springs as well and, and fly to Europe all the time. And they grew up with me. Uh, uh, so, you see, the prejudice operates in the fields of making money from writing. Uh, it doesn't keep a writer from writing if you're colored. No, you can write all you want to, but just try and sell it. That's all. Mr. Kazan? Well, may I go back for a moment to the point which Mr. Baldwin began with, uh, this um, alleged um, conflict between the social and the artistic in American life. You know, words like social and artistic are easy to use, and I'm sure that if I were a Negro writer um, and had to go through the daily humiliations that certain of my friends go through, I would feel this way. But let me for a moment put it upon a purely theoretical plane, where human history is not lived, but where art sometimes can be discussed. America itself has always been a social question. All that's good in American writing, American art, comes out of the profound investigation of social themes. It comes out of the profundity of the things. It's true of Moby Dick and of Leaves of Grass. It comes out of what I consider to be the driving force behind all things, which is human hunger and human desire. Only it's a question, of course, not of how much you desire or how bad you feel, but how artistically you can realize your desire. So that the thing we have to consider for a moment is well, two things. One is the current fashion to believe that art is somehow created apart from society uh, on the basis of purely individual will, uh, as opposed to the marvelous books published in this country between, I would say, 1911 and 1934-35, many of which, like Faulkner's and Steinbeck's, Mr. Hughes's and other such books, are based upon very real and agonizing social problems. And I must say that in the centenary year of the Civil War, it's hard to forget that the Negro, in my belief anyway, is the central issue in American history, has been the central issue all along, has been the real crux of our history and of our aspirations as a people, and that therefore the question that comes up is always how deeply, how profoundly, how accurately do you recognize this social kind of drive in our literature right now? And one thing that's happening right now in middle class writing everywhere is what's happening to Negroes too. People don't have as many beefs as they think they have. We often have no real beefs. They are very often led by what I would consider purely arbitrary problems, and consequently a good deal of the tremendous whiplash of hunger, uh, hunger in the widest sense, the deepest sense, has been forgotten here. I think, to put it very bluntly, in America there cannot be any conflict between the so-called social and artistic impulse. That one must recognize that what we call art is the most profound realization of some social tendency in our art, and that wherever you don't have the social awareness, the social intelligence, then it seems to me you don't have art either. Now, if the Negro, let's look at it another way. The Negro has been not merely a writer, he's also been a character. And he's been, more or less, one of the most profound characters in American literature. I don't mean Uncle Tom either. I mean the characters in Faulkner, I mean the characters in many, even pre-antebellum Civil War novelists, who were always aware of the Negro as a force, as a human being, as a problem, as a challenge, as a lover, as many things. And one must not forget that this problem goes to the very essence of our life as a civilization, that's why I'm so troubled when um, Mr. Baldwin expresses, for reasons that I can well imagine, but which I want for once to pretend that I don't understand, opens by bringing up this whole question of the, of the um, 
conflict between the social and the artistic. I think art is, is never created where one is too aware of this kind of conflict. And I don't also, also believe in conflicts that are realized. Once there's a conflict, I think it was to bypass and go on to a third force as such. And American life right now, I'm thinking, for example, of Mr. Baldwin's Notes of Native Son, which for me, in many ways, is one of the most successful books, even though it's an essay book of, of modern American writing. I recently put it at the head of a big anthology of temporary writing I've edited, and I, I've been struck and rereading it as I had to many times in manuscript and in proof by the power and the brilliancy and the vividness of it. You know what I would say about it? Yeah. I would say it's the Uncle Tom's Cabin of today. Well, <laughs> I have to like Uncle Tom's Cabin. I think it's a masterpiece. And the reason it's a masterpiece is because the broken glass of the 43 Harlem riot, the miseries of personal family, all these things are social impulses that have been captured and realized as works of art. And the minute one tries to break away from this, tries to get away from this enormous passion, then one is lost. The other thing is that one must recognize that art itself was a word that people use, but that they built it to create it as something which is utterly God-given, accidental, capricious, you know. When I think, for example, to speak of something I know rather intimately well, when the Jewish immigrants from whom I come came to this country 50, 60 years ago, there's a whole horde of sweatshop poets, and they were miserable people. They worked 18, 19 hours a day. They lived horrible lives. None of this poetry that I've seen in English or in Yiddish or Hebrew was any good at all. Lola Red. Lola Ridge didn't come out of this class at all. No. And then suddenly, <laughs> and then suddenly, <laughs> and then suddenly, in the last 15 years, we had a group of writers like Saul Bellow and Norman Mailer and Bernard Malibu and others who, with, with enormous uh, surprise to themselves, I think, suddenly created five or six really good books, which are as fresh as anything can be. Now, one reason they've done this is because they've come to recognize their fate as being universal in some sense, and not merely accidental and parochial in that sense. I don't mean that they shouldn't write about parochial things, on the contrary, but they've come to recognize the universal in this. And when I ask myself, what is the difference between those lovable, dear people 60 years ago with their awful sweatshop poetry, and a writer who, to my mind, is as first class as Saul Bellow, in one or two short things, I can only say that it's a question of the, of, of the wielding together at a certain moment of, of all these impulses, without for a moment forgetting that intelligence and social passion come into play here, you see. And one mustn't ever fall, it seems to be, into this problem uh, of dividing the two. Otherwise, it becomes a problem in the economic history of the writer, it becomes a problem in the social history of the writer, it does not become a problem of art, as such, which is something very different entirely. Because otherwise, you see, uh, Mr. Frank Yerby can say very frankly, he took the easy way out, which he did, but that doesn't let him off in any way, you see. Yeah, he does have the swimming pool pulled out. He has a swimming pool, all right. <laughs> he doesn't even need an editor's job in New York. <laughs> Jim, isn't this yeah. pretty much the point you made? Welcome back. And uh, that was um, excerpts uh, from an interview uh, from 1961 uh, in um, New York City uh, featuring Lorraine Hansberry, uh, James Baldwin, and Langston Hughes uh, discussing uh, the African-American uh, plight in the United States as it relates to uh, literature, publishing, and the distribution of literature, and the role, the social role of the writer. And uh, 1959, Lorraine Hansberry gained uh, national acclaim uh, when the play Raising the Sun, uh, which was based uh, on a poem uh, by Langston Hughes, uh, hit uh, the theater circuit and, of course, um, was staged in uh, several cities uh, throughout the United States uh, before coming to New York on Broadway and 
was a major uh, success there and uh, catapulted uh, Lorraine Hansberry uh, into a, a very, very uh, high-profile position uh, in relationship to uh, literature and also considering her political background in terms of the overall struggle uh, that was taking place at the time for civil rights and social justice in the United States. Let's listen to this interview uh, with Lorraine Hansberry in 1959 with Studs Terkel, uh, the radio uh, personality and social justice activist from Chicago. And Lorraine Hansberry, of course, was from Chicago as well. Let's listen in. We're seated in the apartment of uh, Mrs. Hansberry. I believe this is the apartment of the mother or the sister of Lorraine Hansberry, whom we can rightfully describe as a distinguished young American playwright. This may sound like a strange thing to say. An artist has written one play, and we call her a distinguished American playwright. But it isn't one man's opinion, the winner of the Drama Critics Circle Award, which in itself may be unprecedented. I'm not sure. I'll ask Miss Hansberry about this. Lorraine Hansberry, originally of Chicago. Very much so. Back home for a week or so, visiting your family. Mm-hmm. Until Sunday. If we could sort of make this a rambling, a rambling kind of conversation and, and dig as much as we can out of you, your thoughts, how you came to write it, and your feelings about the play and, and theater generally. This afternoon, you, you gave what everybody there thought was an inspiring, not a speech, an inspiring piece of conversation at Roosevelt University about drama generally. And if we can touch on that as we go along, we're fine. I, uh, Lorraine... Mm-hmm. May I? Sure. I'm going to call studs. <laughs> a question is often, I'm sure, is asked you many times. You may be tired of it. Someone comes up to you and says, this is not really a Negro play, Raisin in the Sun. I'm sure you've been told this many... What's your reaction? They say, this mm. is a play about anybody. Now, what do you say? That's an excellent question. Uh, because invariably, this has been the point of reference. People are trying, what they, I know what they're trying to say, what they're trying to say, and mistakenly, as a matter of fact, which I'll speak about, what they're trying to say is that this is not what they consider the traditional treatment of the Negro in the theater. They're trying to say that it isn't a propaganda play, that it isn't a protest no play, play, and that it isn't something that hits you over the head, and the other remarks, which have become cliches themselves, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, and discussing this kind of material. So what they're trying to say is something very good. Uh, They're trying to say that they believe that uh, the characters in our play transcend category. However, it's an unfortunate way to try and do it because I believe that one of the most sound ideas in dramatic writing is that in order to create the universal, you must pay very great attention to the specific. In other words, I've told people that not only is this a Negro family, specifically and definitely culturally, but it's not even a New York family (laughs) or a Southern Negro family. It is specifically Southside Chicago. Uh, That kind of care, that kind of attention to the detail of reference and so forth. In other words, I think people will, to the extent they accept them and believe them as who they're supposed to be, to that extent they can become everybody. So I was definitely a Negro play before it's anything else. The universality itself 
is italicized when you say something specific about a specific human being or a group of human beings, as you did here. Universality, I think, emerges from truthful identity of what is. Something you said as you were uh, breaking down this cliché, this well-meant, this Mm. well-meant point that uh, these are well-rounded people. They could be anybody. You say, when people who say that, forget that. You wrote this play. (laughs) You wrote this play for a certain yes. reason. Yes. Two, you wrote, not a certain reason, shall I say, a certain need to write this play. How did you come about? Uh, this is a yeah, Before vague. I say that, though, sure. I just want to say the other part that I said I would refer to, which sure. is that uh, I don't know what everybody's talking about when they talk about drama in American theater that has been hitting them over the head on the Negro question. They keep alluding to some mysterious mm. whoop, a body of material which allegedly did this. I, for one, can't recall that we have had anything approaching uh, a great number of protest plays or so-called social plays about Negroes. And as a matter of fact, the last play on Broadway that was a Negro play dealt with a boy coming into adolescence. In other words, it seems to be... Take a chance. Yes. You know, where the the Negro question as such was not uh, a paramount issue at all. Uh, it seems to me there's a preoccupation and a sense of guilt or something that some that some elements are so afraid of what they feel that they're already anticipating something that hasn't been true. This is an interesting comment <laughs> here. Uh, we need a few protest it. plays, as a matter of fact. In fact, the last <laughs> protest play as such, with a capital P, I mean, it was something called Stevedore, which was years and mm. years ago, as I remember. The 30s. One of the very few, really. Now, take a giant step... Uh, now, I suppose somebody might have said of Louis Peterson's play, oh, this could be, or could they have said about that, as they did of your play? And also, the one play of which this description is true, as a matter of fact, was Deep of the Roots, which happens to have been a quite a good yeah. play. It wasn't, it wasn't a sloppy play. I would treat all dramatic material differently myself, but that's irrelevant. In terms of ordinary Broadway fare, it was as good as any other play. What they're sensitive about is, is the material that's used in it, obviously. I'm thinking of Walter Lee Younger. Hmm. You call him the the focal character, the protagonist of the play, Walter Lee Younger. And for those, the great many listeners who were not fortunate to hear you this afternoon at Roosevelt, you spoke of Walter Lee Younger as an affirmative hero. And in contrast to many of the heroes of theater, such as we see today, of very excellent plays. Would you mind uh, explaining that a bit? Well... As I went on at length about it this afternoon, because uh, you know I wanted to develop it in terms of what I think are some general patterns in contemporary drama, but specifically in terms of the play itself, Walter is affirmative because he refuses to give up. There are moments when he doubts, you know, himself, and uh, even retreats and goes back into something that. Obviously, to the extent that the point of view of the artist, the author, is clear in this play that I don't agree with and things that he decides to do. But in the end... You mean investing the dough, you mean? Mm, well, beyond that point when he says not only was he cheated, but the solution is to go out and cheat everybody else. Oh, yeah, that's because right. Because this, this is the way life is. What he means, of course, is that this is the way the life around him is. Uh, but I suppose thematically what... What he represents is my own feeling that 
sooner or later we are going to have to make principled decisions in America about a lot of things. And uh, any number of these decisions are going to seem contrary to things that we think we want. In other words, we've set up some very materialistic and uh, overtly uh, uh, we think solid values. Uh, yes, overtly um, limited concepts of how the world should go. Sooner or later, I think we're going to have to decide on them. In other words, I think it's just as conceivable to uh, create a character today who decides maybe that uh, his whole life is wrong so that he ought to go do something else altogether and really make a, completely, a complete reversal of things that we think are very acceptable. This, to me, is a certain kind of affirmation it isn't just rebellion, because rebe rebellion rarely knows what you know what it wants to do when it gets through rebelling. Even this affirmation against it's a what little revolution, no, what may be considered accepted values, generally conventional values, let's say within a framework. In yes. Yes. Walter Lee does. Yes. As uh, you say, nothing is solved, nothing completely solved in the play as they move to a new neighborhood. Right. Uh, you know, it would be just as well, though, to say that um, I chose Willie Loman. I chose Willie Loman because I was making a point. But there was another affirmative character to emerge in the last 80 years who, interestingly enough, also chose death and who was affirmative rather than negative. And this was John Proctor in The Crucible. In The Crucible. Uh, in other words, the point becomes what did he choose death for? He chose death for life. <laughs> In this case, you know, this is the uh, story that well, involves a man who stands up against the Salem witch hunts in the 17th century. This is choosing death for a reason that's going to substantiate life. For like life as bigger. a man rather than as a cipher. Exactly. I hadn't thought about the... This is remarkable. Because Walter Lee Younger may have physical trouble as he leaves, you see, uh, as John Proctor He Proctor's probably yeah. will. <laughs> but Walter Lee Younger... If he's moving anywhere <laughs> in Chicago. <laughs> ...found himself as a man, as John, as John Proctor. I hadn't thought about this. I think of now Mrs. Younger, that is Mrs. Big Walter Younger, Walter Lee's mother... Uh, here is a remarkably strong per question I'm going to ask. You've probably asked it many times. In many cultures, the mother, the woman, is very strong. Mm -hmm. Now, now uh, uh, Steinbeck used it with Mrs. Jode. Yes. Great surprise. Yes. Someone drew a in, beautiful analogy. In Negro families, uh, through the years, the mother has always been a sort of pillar of strength, hasn't she? Yes. Yes. Those of us who are. To any degree, students of Negro history think this has something to do with the slave society, of course, where she was allowed to a certain degree of, uh, not ascendancy, but of at least control of her family, whereas the male was relegated to absolutely noth nothing at all. And this has probably been sustained by the sharecropper system in the South and on up into even urban Negro life in the North. At least that's the theory. I think it's a mistake to get it confused with Freudian concepts of uh, matriarchal dominance and Philip Wiley's momism and all that business. It, it's not the same thing. Uh, 
Not that there aren't negative things about it, not that tyranny sometimes doesn't emerge, you know, uh, as a part of it. But basically, it's uh, it's a great thing. Uh, these women have become the backbone of our people in a very necessary way. Underground this, railway leaders. Yes, yes. Uh, the Irish reflect this, I think. There's a, there's a relationship between uh, Mother Younger in this play and Juno, which is very strong and obvious. And I think there's always a relationship, perhaps I don't know that much about Irish history, but there was probably a necessity. Why, among oppressed peoples, the mother will assume a certain kind of uh, role in a way, she's almost, uh, it's not it's the wrong word I'm using, it's almost a front. Not really a front, but uh, the guy, you know, immediately the guy of any uh, people under pressure is the prime target to begin with, maybe. I don't know. Possibly. This, this, this has no limit. Obviously, uh, people who are sophisticated enough to know it say that obviously the, the most oppressed group of any oppressed group will be its women, you know, obviously since women, period, are oppressed in society, and if you've got an oppressed group, they're twice oppressed. Mm -hmm. So I should imagine that um, they react accordingly as oppression makes people more militant and so forth and so on than twice militant because they're twice oppressed, so that there's a, an assumption of leadership historically. I want, to, I want to come back to Mrs. Younger later on, but you mentioned the Juno, so there's something you said in the current issue of New Yorker, your feelings about O'Casey. <laughs> yes. O'Casey, the playwright. You were talking yes. about... Some I of love the, Sean O'Casey. What is it about O'Casey? Of course, your play has a certain life to it now. What are you feeling about O'Casey? Well, O'Casey is divided, first of all. When I speak of the O'Casey that I love, I mean things like Shadow of a Gunman and Juno and... Um, I've never read The Plow and the Stars. I want to. But this area, and Red Roses for me. Uh, this, to me, is uh, the playwright of the 20th century accepting and using the most obvious instruments of Shakespeare, which is the human personality in its totality. Uh, I've always thought this is profoundly significant for Negro writers and to use, not to copy. There's no reason to copy. The material here is too rich to copy anybody. But as a model, as a point of departure, O'Casey never fools you about the Irish, you see. You go, you, the Irish drunkard, the Irish braggart, the Irish... Uh, uh, liar. Liar, who's always talking about how he's going to fight the revolution and when the English really show up, you know, he mm. runs and gets under the bed and the young girl goes out to... Uh, fight with the, with the Tommies, you see, and so forth and so on, and the genuine heroism which must naturally emerge when you tell the truth about people. This, this to me, is the height of uh, artistic perception and is the most um, rewarding kind of thing that can happen in drama because when you, when you believe people so completely you know, that uh, they're so recognizable because everybody has their drunkards and their braggarts and their cowards, then you also believe them in their moments of heroic Heroes assertion. Too. You know, you don't doubt them. You don't feel like, well, this is soap opera.
Now, Walter but, Lee, uh, uh, what, uh, what you said can be directly applied to your own work, really, because you showed Walter Lee's frailties throughout. You know, and when he did emerge in that heroic moment, we believed. You know. well, that was the hope. That was the intent. Also, the, the other thing about O'Casey is that, in other words, what I believe in, for instance, if we're really going to talk technical dramaturgy, is what I do not believe in is naturalism. I think naturalism should die away and a quiet death. I do believe in realism. By naturalism, you mean the tape-recorded kind of... Precisely. This is you not can say Chayefsky in a way. Not because... Uh, the, the only reason I say this is that because I'm talking about yeah. it negatively at the yeah. moment. And there are things about Chayefsky which I think have been very important for American television drama. Uh, but naturalism is its own limitation, you know. In other words, if you just repeat what is, you can go and show a murder and say this is the whole of life, because after all, there it is. You've made a photographic reproduction of it. Go deny it. It's true. It's real. Realism demands the imposition of a point of view, and the point of view of O'Casey is always the wonder of the nobility of people, and he literally imposes it on us. Uh, it's the additional dimension always of the humanity of people. And he literally imposes it on us. And he uses something which I can't imitate because I'm not equipped to. He uses uh, poetic dialogue which moves it out of the realm of what I'm ever able to write into the sphere of great art. I wish I could. I think, as a matter of fact, there are parallels between Negro speech, even urban Negro speech in America, and and um, urban Irish speech, which should make it very easy. But there it is doesn't a, happen. <laughs> there is a great deal of poetry. I felt I'm not, I'm not buttering you now. Well, I'm there glad There is a great deal it. of poetry in in Raisin in the Sun, because to me, you can, again, not naturalism, you say, but not realism as such. But larger than life. Isn't that what you meant to say? Theater should be larger than life. Always, always. There used to be a ballet in this play. <laughs> there was a ballet? There used to be a ballet. I had a letter from Max Lerner. I don't know if that means anything in the Chicago list. Yes, it does. I think there are many Max <laughs> readers here. And he said to me that... Oh, excuse me. He, I rather, he, he wrote a column on, on the play, you know. And he, in, the in the New York Post. In the New York Post. And he said, uh, it's a very good column. And uh, he said that uh, he liked the play very much. However, it was a little too literal for his taste. And those places where Miss Hansberry almost let go her imagination, she suddenly remembered that she was a nice, proper girl and then got back to this very literal play, you see. Uh, he was very much enamored of the African scene, for instance. You know, Walter gets up, which so forth. Uh, is, Walter is, does the warrior, that one where he, where he Yes, and where he off. speaks in mm -hmm. open poet, mm -hmm. poetic... Uh, declarations about the coming time when we're going to march and so forth and so on, which is a half of the man which only realism could impose on the scene, not naturalism, because naturalism would never happen. Nobody would believe it. And I wrote him a note, and I said, You're, that was a very interesting remark, because I was the one who was tamed, you know. I, I think that uh, imagination has no bounds in a realism, that you can do anything, which is permissible in terms of the truth of the characters, and that's all. That's all that you have to care about. And that I told him that there had once been a ballet, a modern ballet in this play. You <laughs> within it, in, as you, when you originally wrote that's this. That's right. 
So when the when the motifs of the characters were to be done in modern dance, it didn't work. <laughs> it may not have worked at it that time, but work. the fact is no. that, that you had a ballet in mind indicates that there was a poetic feeling, you see. Right. It, it indicates some of the directions that I feel I would There's go. There's something you said a moment ago, and uh, I know Bill Leonard of, of the trip interviewed you briefly this afternoon. I mean, you, uh, the play, some will ask you, is this autobiographical? Yes, Yet they your, keep asking your background is not... Your background culturally may be the place, to some extent, background, but it is not specifically. No, it isn't. I've tried to explain this to people. I've come from an extremely comfortable background, materially speaking, and uh, yet uh, I've also tried to explain we live in a ghetto, you know, which automatically means intimacy with all classes and all kinds of experiences. It's not any more difficult for me to know the people that I wrote about than it is for me to know members of my family because there is that kind of intimacy. This is one of the things that uh, the American experience has meant to Negroes. We are one people. I also tried to tell the people at the New Yorker, you know, in that interview that you read that uh, I had a reason for choosing this particular class. I guess at this moment the Negro middle class may be from 5 to 6 to 7% of our people. See? you know, the comfortable middle class. And I believe that uh, they are atypical of the more uh, representative experience of Negroes in this country. Therefore, I have to believe that whatever we ultimately achieve, however we ultimately transform our lives, will come from the kind of people that I chose to portray. That therefore, they are more pertinent, more relevant, more significant, and most important, most decisive in our political history and uh, our political future. This is, here again, is the, is the mark of a playwright, if I may interject this. Outside your own, it, within your experience and yet outside it in the material sense. Yes. Because you sensed here was the more dramatic. Yes. Uh, figure. The little girl, if I may, uh, I'm wondering a personal thing, a uh, very charming and alive little sister. Is this slightly autobiographical? Oh, she's stages? very autobiographical, my sister. My <laughs> brother would tell you that. <laughs> this, uh, as a matter of fact, it's an expression of conceit, really, because the truth of the matter is that uh, I enjoyed making fun of this girl, who is myself, eight years ago, you know. I enjoyed making fun of her because... I have that kind of confidence about what she represents. I'm not worried about her, you know. Uh, she's precocious. She's over-outspoken. She's everything, you know, which uh, tends to be comic. And, uh, you know, people sigh with her and they have one at home <laughs> like that, you know, and they, they enjoy her for this reason. She's very much alive. Yes. But I also uh, feel that she doesn't have a word in the play that I don't agree with still today. I would say it differently today. That's it. She doesn't have a word in the play. You don't. You would say it differently in a more mature way today. I hope it's more mature. But basically, the kid is right. Oh, I think so. Yes. She's uh, she's suspect of many things that Walter Lee accepts. You see, mm -hmm. he has the energy and he has the will at the moment to to make the decisive decisions. That's why I say that he's a pivotal character. As a matter of fact, if I can just digress, people have I've been interested in some of the criticisms of the play. We had. One letter in the New York Times from, uh, you could tell by the <clears throat> tone and quality of the letter from a very sophisticated young man sitting somewhere, who said that he regarded the soap opera, you know, which amused me. 
and uh, because if anyone wanted to discuss this play in terms of soap opera, they'd have a great deal of trouble because soap opera implies melodrama, and melodrama has a classical definition. If you can prove that there are no motivated crises in this play, I would be astonished. So I don't think it qualifies as melodrama. I think it's legitimate drama. Um, or a happy ending. If he thinks that's a happy ending, I invite him to come. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Go live in one of those communities where these people apart. are going. However, so that that character of uh, criticism I am inclined to be contemptuous of because it's based on a snobbery that doesn't understand things uh, that doesn't understand the profundity of things that are deliberately simple. Lorraine, you, you hit a very tender point with me. I won't go into this on this very uh, on the letter written by that young man. I am <laughs> very well acquainted. With what that. I did want to say though was that I'm not hostile to legitimate criticism. And one of the things that's been very interesting to me is that no one has picked out something that I think is a very genuine criticism of the play. That is that it lacks a central character. In true classical sense, there is no central character in this play. You there is a pivotal character. In Walter Lee. Yes. But isn't that because some will say, some will tell you Mrs. Young. That's right. People come out and they think it's the mother, they think it's the son, and some people are so enamored of the daughter, they're not sure that she isn't really more relevant in some way or somehow. Well, this is, a, this is to me, a weakness of the play. Is this really a weakness? I mean, uh, must there, because, must it be about a single, you see, this is a play in a sense of, may, maybe you're right, a play about, I'm thinking of Wake and Sing for the moment, you see. Who was a central character in what was a very excellent play of a Jewish lower middle class family, mm -hmm. there was no central uh, any more than in yours, really, was there? Well, uh, obviously, when you start breaking rules, yeah. you may be doing it for yeah. a good reason, you may yeah. find something yeah. else. And yeah, since true. people are able to hold on to the play and become involved yeah. in a way that the central character is supposed to guarantee, then maybe you don't really need it. Yeah. I wonder But for me, all I'm saying is yeah. that, uh, in my view of drama, the great yeah. plays have always had a central character with whom we rise or fall, no matter what, from the Greeks through Shakespeare. Lily uh, or Hamlet. Through or Ibsen, so. Mm. The, Afri the African suitor, I want to come to something now, mm. always intrigued me very much. Remember, my I favorite character. He's <laughs> a remarkable figure. Who is he? What is his uh, meaning in this particular mm. play in contrast to the others? Mm. He represents two things. He represents, first of all, the true intellectual. This is a young man who is so absolutely confident in his understanding and his perception about the world, that he has no need for any of the uh, facade of pseudo-intellectuality, for any of the pretenses and the, you know, the nonsense, which is why he can laugh at her. She's just getting to a point of understanding where he's been already. He's, you know, he can already kid about all the features of intense nationalism because he's been there, and he understands beyond that point. He's already concerned about the human race on a new level. He's a true, genuine intellectual. He's a man who's involved in concepts so that he doesn't have time or interest except for amusement in useless passion and useless uh, promenading of ideas. That's partially what he represents. That's one part of it. The other thing that he represents is much more overt. I was aware that on the Broadway stage they have never seen an African who didn't have his shoes hanging around his neck, you know, and a bone through his nose or his ears or something. The stereotype. And I thought that even just theatrically speaking, this would most certainly be refreshing, you know. 
And uh, again, it, it required no departure from truth because the only Africans that I have known, of course, have been African students in the United States who, this boy is a composite of many of them, as a matter of fact, no one guy. And what they have represented to me in life is what this fellow represents in the play, excuse me, and that is the emergence of an articulate and deeply conscious uh, colonial intelligentsia <laughs> in the world. Uh, I'm very much concerned and caught up in the movements of the African peoples toward uh, colonial liberation, liberation out of colonialism. And he represents that to me. He also uh, signifies a, um, you know, a hangover of something that began in the 30s when Negro intellectuals first discovered the African past and became very uh, aware of it. Garveyism and everything else. Maybe. Yes, that was part of it in a different sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I meant particularly uh, in poetry and uh, the creative well, arts. Well, the culture that was there. Yes, Hughes did this and uh, Africa this and Africa that. I still feel this way. I want to reclaim it. The great culture. Not physically, I don't mean I want but to move to it. I think it's, it's, I'm glad you mentioned this. Uh, the, so many anthropologists agree. I mean, the great culture that is there and that has been that was uh, stolen, too. Oh, sure, sure and which uh, may very well uh, make very decisive contributions to the development of the world in the next few years. There's a point... I suspect it's going to. <laughs> I'm sure it will. There's a point... Asagai is an angry young man who can be very quiet in his anger. This is the young student. The African student. You say he is an angry young man. Yes, who There's can a... be quiet yeah, in his anger. There's a point I want to raise. Now, you may get a kick out of us and disagree. Uh, when Sidney Poitier and Leon Bibb, his friend, the singer, mm -hmm. you know, were interviewed, mm -hmm. they spoke of the young student. as he's an idealist, he would have a rough time. Now, see if you agree with this. There's an interesting point. Here. They say Nkrumah and Kenyatta are very practical men, is the point they were making. And he, your friend, would uh, have a rough time uh, in the power battle as such. He might be sort With of hamburger, squeezed between two forces. This was the inference. I hope I haven't misinterpreted them. Right, I bring that. They were I saying that uh, uh, that that Asagai, the African yeah. suit in the play, as opposed to men like Kenyatta and Nkrumah, that's is right. an idealist. Yeah, that's there. right. Oh, that's they, they admire, <laughs> they admire the two men they were talking about. They were saying that he may be just taken. Is the he he might be victimized by in a, in a rough and tumble battle being the idealist he is, you see. Except that this man has an ideological preparation for that. In fact, in one sense, he gives the statement of the play. You know, I don't know how many people get it, but he, he does. He says, she says to him, you're always talking about independence and freedom in Africa, but what about the time when that happens and then you'll have crooks and petty thieves who come into the, to power and they'll do the same things, only now they'll be blacked. You know, so what's the difference? And he says to her that this is virtually irrelevant in terms of history, that uh, when that time comes, there will be Nigerians to step out of the shadows and kill the tyrants, just as now they must do away with the British. Uh, and that history always solves its own questions, but you get to first things first. In other words, this man has no illusions at all. 
This is a wonderful answer. This he just Chris. believes in the order that things must take. He knows that first, before you can start talking about uh, what's wrong with uh, independence, get it, <laughs> and I'm with him. <laughs> wonderful. You tell that to them when you get back here. <laughs> Again, if I may come back and be personal, my reaction to the play when it opened here in Chicago is so completely taken with the direction of Lloyd Richards, mm. incidentally, too. Yes, it's brilliant. And I of think. course, the cast, but uh, the play's the thing come back to that again and you and the next question we've sort of talked of raising now and you you have I imagine a number of projects in mind if I don't want to uh, dig here unless you feel free yourself in what projects you're thinking of tackling we haven't well all things in the world I have um become involved in doing an opera libretto, which I do hesitate to talk about because I'm right. uh, <laughs> just uh, getting into it and terrified of it. I don't know a thing in the world about writing an opera, uh, but I'm going to do one with a young Negro composer in New York who I think is enormously talented and uh, imaginative in his music. We'll let that rest for a moment and we'll see it. <laughs> but since you mentioned opera, there was uh, perhaps you you were misquoted, or I want to get the New York Times quoted you. You 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 spoke of a certain irritation in seeing plays, so-called uh, plays about the Negro or such, written by people wholly re uh, removed yes, from the situation. Yes, what yes. was the cracking? Was one of wonderful one by Carmen Jones? Something you said about it that was very funny. Well, there's, you know, the, I've probably alluded to the fact that I've been struck that uh, the the whole concept of the exotic, you know, that in Europe they think that, the, well, the gypsy is just the most exotic thing that ever walked across the earth is because he's isolated from the mainstream of European life. So that obviously the natural parallel in American life is the Negro, <laughs> you know, very exotic. Sorry. So whenever they get ready to do something like uh, a Bizet opera, which involves the gypsies of Spain, uh, it's translated, they think, very neatly into a Negro piece. And uh, I just think this is sort of a bore by now. That this is uh, it's very fine music, but, you know... Uh, the clichés are there. I'm, I'm, I'm bored with the clichés. Pretty worrisome by now. I don't think very many people realize how boring, aside from being nauseating, that uh, stereotype notions are also very dull. I, you know, I think this... This is said far too, not often enough, that uh, it isn't only a matter that Porgy and Bess, I'm talking about the book now, because once again, this is good music, this is beautiful music. I think this great American music in which the roots of our native opera are to be found someday. But the book, uh, the Du Bois Haywood yeah, book, uh, not only is that offensive, <laughs> You know, it isn't only that it insults me because it's it's a degrading concept and a degrading way of looking at people, but it's bad art because it doesn't tell the truth, and fiction demands the truth. You know, you have to give a many-sided character. In other words, there is no excuse for stereotype. But I'm not talking socially or politically. I'm talking as an artist now. Aesthetically, now it's exactly made. that if if someone feels that this is a lie you know, because it's just one half of me, then the artist should shudder for reasons other than the NAACP, the responsible artist. Something you just said, art must tell the truth. I think so. 
It's almost the only place where you can tell it. <laughs> what about writing today, uh, whether it be drama? Uh, I'm thinking of uh, more specifically, I'm, I'm big, young Negro writers today. I mean, any hit you? I mean, there's John Killen's young mm. one, perhaps. There. Well, there isn't a great deal happening. Uh, I've just started to read Frank London Brown's book, and I'm not equipped to talk about it because I'm, I'm just starting to get into it. Um, there's a young guy in New York who's been one of the exiles who's come home. We're starting a new movement against the 30s. Some of the American kids are coming back now from Paris and Rome. Uh, Jimmy Baldwin. Well, know, he'd gone away. He'd got, he, he left. Died. He went. <coughs> Enough. Did Baldwin do that, too? Baldwin is yeah. who I'm talking about. Oh, oh James Baldwin. James oh, yeah. Baldwin, uh, who is back, and who I think, I don't read novels that much, I'm ashamed to say, for somebody who wants to write one, but I think from what I've read of his essays and some of his fiction, because this is undoubtedly one of the most talented American writers walking around, and... Uh, if he can wed uh, his particular gifts, I think, which are just way beyond most of us trying to write in many levels to uh, material of substance, then we have the potential of a great American writer. He's one that I think he of. He came back. This is interesting. Mm. I'm thinking, of course, of someone very definite, Richard Wright, of course. Yes, who didn't come back. And uh, who has not been... Dis Impressive in his output, in my opinion. Would you feel, since you said this, this last thing you just said, do you feel, this may sound like cliche, that I'm saying, away, away from roots, I hate to use the word, and yet Richard Wright, who was so close and strong. No. Go you ahead. know why? Go ahead. Because, and I said this on television in New York recently, this thing of being away from one's roots, I was making a different point. What I'm saying, somebody's, people are always talking about how don't get lost in a cause, you know, because this is what destroys art. And I've been obliged to remind people that for 200 years, the only writers in English literature we've had to boast about have been the Irish, who come from an oppressed culture. You know, Shaw, O'Casey, from, from Jonathan Swift to James Joyce and so forth and so on. You name them in, in the last 200 years and they've been Irishmen, which I don't think is an accident, even though they aren't protest writers in the sense that we think of in the United States. Uh, but also, most of them have been writing outside of Ireland. In other words, O'Casey is writing his Dublin plays, you know, in uh, Devonshire, in England, and they still ring and have good Irish flavor in them. The Irish don't seem to reject them in terms of, you know, being false, so I guess it's good. No, I think there must be some other reason why Wright deteriorated. Well, you've answered my question right there. That's beautiful, that's right. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what the reason is, because I think he had within him the possibilities to have been the greatest American writer, because what he had, I think, would have made William Faulkner uh, seem just peculiar, which, of course, is what he seems anyhow, in my opinion. Go ahead. You, you just said, what do you mean by that? Well, I haven't even read that much Faulkner, but uh, I'm not impressed with obscurity. I think it's easier. For all I know, the man could be a genius. For all I know, he might be the reverse. I just can't tell from obscurity. Sooner or later, I have to be able to get some sense of organization and uh, 
treatment of material that lets me know that there's skill here or genius, you know. And I can't tell this from a from a Faulkner. Of course, not matter from much of James Joyce, but at least his point of departure was one I could understand. Uh, and Wright, of course, belonged to another tradition of American writing. I don't even think it was a conscious belonging, but he did. That, uh, you know, I think came to flower in things like Rapes of Wrath and uh, the novel of that nature. If my husband were here, he'd say Theodore Dreiser, actively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I, I'd like to see that kind of uh, panoramic power reemerge in the American novel. I think maybe it may come from a Negro novelist. Someone like Baldwin, who may have been away. I don't as know. You don't know. I don't know if Baldwin's yeah. eyes are that wide. Yeah. The gifts are there, you know. But if I his eyes are that wide, that's a beautiful <laughs> phrase. I like that. <laughs> I love that phrase. Well, it's obvious. He feels. I'm worried about what he sees. <laughs> you know, that that gets to be the problem. Well, I think it's obvious that uh, it's no accident that *Raisin of the Sun* came to be written by Lorraine Hansberry after. We've been listening to her now. And I know this is late at night here at home. And I wish I'd suggest people read the current issue of The New Yorker. <laughs> and you can find there, too, the, the, the graciousness in in Miss Hansberry and the tremendous demands. What about success, this little goddess success? What does it do to you? It, it obviously deprives you of privacy to something. Well, right now it does. Yeah, it does. Just one moment here. It does, except that it's wonderful. It's wonderful and... Uh I'm enjoying it. I think it's important. I think there comes a time when you, you know you pull the telephone out and you go off and you you end it. But for the time being, I'm enjoying every bit of it. I've tried to go to everything I was invited to. I I shouldn't even say this on the air, but so far I've tried to answer every piece of correspondence I get, which, as I said in the piece, gets to be about 20 and 30 pieces a day at this point. But uh, this. I don't have the right to be very personal about the reception to this play because I think the reception to this play transcends what I did or what Sidney Poitier or Lloyd Richards or Philip Rose or any of us connected with it. I think what it reflects at this moment is that at this particular moment in our country, as backward and as depressed as I, for instance, am about so much of it, there's a new mood. I think we went through eight to ten years of misery under McCarthy and all that nonsense. And uh, to the great credit of the American people, they got rid of it. And they're feeling like, make new sounds. And I'm glad I was here to make one, you know. Beautiful, make new sounds. That's the best of jazz men say that too, but in this case, certainly one of the most sensitive of writers says it. It's a close relationship. <laughs> I've often said that uh, the glory of Langston Hughes was that he... Uh, he took the quality of the blues and put it into our poetry. And I think when the Negro dramatist can begin to approach a little of that quality, he might almost get close to what O'Casey does in putting the Irish folk song into play. I'd like to. I think Lorraine Hansberry is on that road, certainly. Thank you very much. And is there anything you, uh, sort of a postscript, always allow an opening, anything else you care to say, anything, it, it doesn't matter, that you haven't said thus far? You mean quickly or a paragraph? <laughs> no, no, as, as much time as you want. I can always want. say something. I'd say this, that uh, I spoke of, of how I think there's a new affirmative political mood and social mood in our country having to do with the fact that people are finally 
even getting aware that Negroes are tired and it's time to do something about that question. That, but beyond that, in terms of the total picture, I'd also like to see a parallel to it in terms of the culture of our country. I can see no reason in the world why the American theater should be lined up on about six blocks in Broadway in New York City. I'd like to be see a little agitation to get uh, national theater and other art programs in this country so that the kids all over the United States can go see Shakespeare without thinking it's a bore, you know. Or Lorraine Hansberry <laughs> or Eugene O'Neill. That's all. Well, a double thank you for that, certainly. Lorraine Hansberry and the, uh, you people who have missed the play here during its pre-New York run, go to New York, well, if you can get tickets, fine. But someday it'll return to Chicago. Obviously it will when the I national company company. comes and the original company. Lorraine Hansberry, playwright, human being, thank you very much. That was a conversation that occurred 12 years ago here in Chicago with Lorraine Hansberry, the, the late uh, Miss Hansberry. Uh, it was in conjunction with the opening, pre-New York opening of her play, Raisin in the Sun. And in thinking of the conversation, think of 12 years, how much has happened and how little has happened, both. And the references, of course, many references are dated. Don't get the current issue of the New Yorker about Lorraine Hansberry, because that was 1959. But uh, it would seem the theme is still, fortunately and unfortunately, quite contemporary. Though one of the excerpts from the uh, production, the performance of The Young Gifted in Black, it's a, it's a collection of various unfinished pieces by Lorraine Hansberry. And Chenille Perry offers this one, Summer, and this is really autobiographical too because her girlhood was here, Summer in Chicago. My childhood South Side summers were the ordinary city kind, full of the street games which other rememberers have turned into fine ballets these days and rhymes that anticipated what some people insist on calling modern poetry. Oh, Mary Mac, 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 with the silver buttons, 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 all down her back, 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 she asked her mother, 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 for 15 cents, 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 to see the elephant, 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 jump over the fence, 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 well, he jumped so high, 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 till he touched the sky, 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 and he didn't come back, Back, back till the 4th of July, lie, lie, lie. I remember skinny little south side bodies by the fives and tens of us panting the delicious hours away. May I? And the voice of authority. Yes, you may. You may take one giant step. One drew in all one's breath and tightened one's fist and pulled the small body against the heavens, stretching, straining all the muscles in the legs to make one giant step. It's a long time. One forgets the reason for the game. For children's games are always explicit in their reasons for being. To play is to win something, or not to be it, or to be high pointer, or outdoer, or sometimes just the winner. But after a time, one forgets. Why was it important to take a small step, a teeny step, or the most desired of all, one giant step? A giant step to where? Welcome back. And uh, that was um, a rare archived uh, interview uh, with uh, Lorraine Hansberry uh, done uh, by Spats Turkle in uh, 1959, uh, of course, uh, in Chicago. Uh, during uh, the ascendancy of the play uh, Raisin in the Sun. 
that uh, gained uh, so much acclaim uh, for Lorraine Hansberry uh, during uh, 1959 and beyond. And uh, we're going to take a break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. All day long I faced a bad way Without a taste of water I need some cool water Oh, damn life Without throat burn dry The devil, not a man, and he spreads the burning sand with water. Hey, Dan, can you see that big green tree where the water's running free and it's waiting there for you?
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. For New Year's Day uh, 2022, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. That was uh, the voice of Johnny Nash, the legendary Johnny Nash, uh, singing uh, the tune entitled Cool Water. And um, today, uh, we began a new day, a new year, a new month, and of course, uh, we'll be here uh, throughout uh, the year of uh, 2021, and of course, uh, these are some of the uh, very, very important issues uh, we'll be dealing with, and uh, we're going to next here an address uh, delivered uh, by Lorraine Hansberry in uh, 1964, June 1964, uh, public meeting uh, where she spoke out uh, about uh, various aspects of the uh, Black Revolution in 1964, during the summer of 1964. And uh, Lorraine Hansberry, um, of course, uh, by this time, uh, was um, extremely ill and um, did die uh, about uh, eight months, uh, six to eight months uh, later after this uh, public address in New York City during uh, June <clears throat> of 1964. And uh, let's listen in. I wrote a letter to the New York Times recently which didn't get printed which is getting to be my rapport with the New York Times. They said that it was too personal. What it, what it concerned itself with was I was in a bit of a stew over the Stalin. Because when the Stalin was first announced, I said, oh my God, now everybody's going crazy, you know, tying up traffic, what's the matter with you know, who needs it? And then I noticed the reaction, starting in Washington and coming on up to New York among what we're all here calling the, the white liberal circles, which was something like, you know, you Negroes act right or you're going to ruin everything we're trying to do. You know? <laughs> and that got me to thinking more seriously about the strategy and the tactic that the Stalin intended to accomplish. And so I sat down and wrote a letter to the New York Times. I am of a generation of Negroes that comes after a whole lot of other generations. And my father, who was, uh, you know, real American-type American, successful businessman, uh, very civic-minded and so forth, was the sort of American who put a great deal of money, a great deal of his really extraordinary talents, and a great deal of passion into everything that we say is the American way of going after gold. That is to say that he moved his family into a restricted area where no Negroes were supposed to live and then proceeded to fight the case in the courts all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And this is the way of struggling that everyone says is the proper way to do and it eventually uh, resulted in a, a decision against restrictive covenants which is very famous, Hansberry versus Lee. But the problem is that Negroes are just as segregated in the city of Chicago now as they were then. My father died a disillusioned exile in another country. 
That is the reality that I am faced with when I get up and I read that some Negroes my own age and younger say that we must now lie down in the streets, tie up traffic, stop ambulances, do whatever we can, take to the hills if necessary with some guns, and fight back, you see. Can't you understand that this is the perspective from which we are now speaking? It isn't as if we got up today and said, you know, what can we do to irritate America? You know, it's because that since 1619, Negroes have tried every method of communication, of transformation of their situation, from petition to the vote, everything. We've, all, we've tried it all. There isn't anything that hasn't been exhausted. Isn't it rather remarkable that we can talk about a people who were publishing newspapers while they were still in slavery in 1827, you see? I've been doing everything, writing editorials, Mr. Wexler, for a long time, uh, you know. And now the charge of impatience is simply unbearable. I would like to submit that the problem is that, yes, there is a problem about white liberal. The problem is we have to find some way with these dialogues to, to show and to encourage the white liberal to stop being a liberal and become an American radical. I think that then it wouldn't, when that becomes true, some of the really eloquent things that were said before about the basic fabric of our society, which after all is the thing which must be changed, you know, uh, to, to, to really solve the problem. You know, the, the, the basic organization of American society is the thing that has Negroes in the situation that they are in, and never let us lose sight of it. It is entirely different, you see, the way that you would assess the Vietnamese war and the way I would, because I can't believe... believe that anyone who is given what an American Negro is given, you know, our viewpoint, can believe that a government which has at its disposal a Federal Bureau of Investigation which cannot ever find the murders of Negroes, and by that method never, no, and shows that it cares really very little about American citizens who are black, really are over somewhere fighting a war for a bunch of other colored people, you know. Uh, several thousand miles, you just have a different viewpoint. This, this is why we want the dialogue, to, to explain that to you. I, I think, uh, since we closed on a peculiar note for the break, that I, for one, would like to identify my position. Uh, radicalism is not alien to this country, neither black nor white. And we have a very great tradition of white radicalism in the United States. And I've never heard Negroes boo the name of John Brown. So there's no problem, no matter how excited we get, I think ultimately anybody at this table who wants to read any patriot out of the Negro movement, it's not the point. Some of the first peoples who have died so far in this struggle have been white men. And I, for one, would be prepared, I must say, an exception to anything said, to accept the leadership of a person who gives that much devotion as against someone who would exhibit the uh, traitorous characters of, of uh, say, a Moise Chambé.
Uh, I don't think that we can decide ultimately on the basis of color. The passion that we express should be understood, I think, in that context. We want total identification. It's not a question of reading anybody out. It's, it's a merger, but it has to be a merger on the basis of true and genuine equality. And if we think that it isn't going to be painful, we're mistaken. I know that you, for instance, are an admirer of our late president, and he presumed, with all respect to the dead, I, but he happens to have been our president, so I have to talk about him that way, uh, to have suggested to the world that if our foreign policy were not honored with regard to Cuba, that we would blow up the world, you see. And we live in a nation where everything which is talked about is talked about in terms of the fact that we are going to be the mightiest, the toughest, the roughest cats going, you know, in the whole world. And, and when a Negro says something about, I'm tired, I can't stand it no more, I want to hit somebody, you say that we're sitting here panting and ranting for violence, you know? It's not right. I think it's very simple that the, the question of the, the whole idea of debating whether or not Negroes should defend themselves is an insult. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Lorraine Hansberry uh, from June 1964, speaking at a public meeting on uh, the Black Revolution and the White Backlash uh, during uh, 1964, and uh, we're here at the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, our inaugural program for 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding remarks for this program.
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the band Love on the direction of Arthur Lee from their uh, fourth album entitled For Sale, the tune entitled August uh, from 1969. And that's going to conclude our program uh, for today, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, our inaugural episode uh, for uh, 2022. This is January the 1st. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to uh, close out uh, with the music of the Band of Gypsies uh, from a concert uh, 52 years ago in New York City at the Fillmore East, featuring uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Billy Cox, and Buddy Miles. Let's listen to live concert, the Band of Gypsies.
Chicago and Milwaukee and New York. Oh yes, and all the soldiers fighting in Vietnam. But they do a thing called machine gun. 